Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Authoritarian countries are on a global mission to deliberately portray democracy as inherently dysfunctional, and our democracy isn't dysfunctional. And we have a real opportunity here to show the world that democracy works and it is the best system of government. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to the show. This is our last show for the year, and it has been a year so large I really don't have words for it. So I just want to start quickly by paying tribute to listeners who have been with us all year in extraordinary numbers and giving us wonderful feedback the whole time. Thank you for hanging in there. And I'm absolutely delighted that my final guest for the year is the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill. Now, she and I have not been able to have a catch-up on the show. That's <laughs> <laughs> just the story of 2022. Oh, yeah. Um, since the change of government. If you're a long-time listener of the pod, you will be familiar with Claire, who has been on in the past prior to the election win for Labor earlier in the year, but we have not had a home affairs chat since uh, she was sworn into the portfolio now, what, six months ago? Exactly, six months. But who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> you and I are both ready for Christmas. I can see that, I think Catherine. So. We're thrilled to be here, yes. loving the chat, but yes, ready for Christmas. But ready. <laughs> ready for things to stop for a bit. No, well, anyway, I just want to start there, Claire, because I have actually done this with a few of your colleagues, mm. actually, post-election. So you've made this big professional transition. Obviously, you've won an election, you've been sworn into a major portfolio. It's a little different, obviously, from the portfolios that you mm. had in opposition. Yeah. So I'm really interested how you found the transition mm. when, you know, you're sworn in, you turn up at the department, there's your officials, there's your briefs. Mm. What happened next? <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, I'd just say, you know, I'd been in opposition for nine years. My entire life in the parliament had been in opposition. And like most people, I am here to try to make a difference. And so it's intensely frustrating, especially watching the last government, which, you know, your viewers have all got ideological differences, of course, but for me, like, just taking things in the wrong direction fundamentally on all of the major public policy challenges we faced it, and it hurt, you know, this mm. is, my life is about government and what it does, and um, so just to win, you know, was just an enormous thing, not for the victory, but to know that we were going to get the chance to actually do something mm. good for the country and address some of these subjects that, you know, for a decade just wallowed around without anyone taking them seriously. So 
I think there's that. But, you know, of course, it's been an amazing experience to be suddenly responsible for an enormously large, complex department which serves a core function in the lives of Australians, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, And for me, when I kind of look at the big picture of the life of our country, this portfolio gives me the chance to work on what I think is the biggest problem that we face as a country. And so it's so meaningful to me, the work that I'm doing. Just one thing I think would be of interest to your listeners, though, it's being a good minister requires a very different leadership style to the one that Mm -hmm. I'm used to. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think like probably if you don't mind me saying like a lot of women, I'm much more inclined to a collaborative style of leadership where you really listen to the people around you and build group consensus. A lot of my job now requires quite authoritarian type of leadership, which is not, you you just have to move so quickly. Mm -hmm. And um, everyone's got a different point of view and you are called on just dozens of times a day to just make a decision so people can move an issue forward. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I've been really flexing. I got my start in local government where, you know, consensus is everything. Yeah. You have to convince people of your pathway because mayors, as I was uh, when I was a bit younger, don't exercise a lot of executive power. You've, your power sits with the council. Mm-hmm. This is very different. Ministers have real, genuine personal authority and you have to be able to exercise Exercise that, you know, decisively and allow things to move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. (laughs) So, no, no, well, it is. So, how uh, you you say you've been flexing with it, so you, you know, you're going for it. I mean, anyway. Well, I think initially I, you know, probably was trying to take the approach that I would normally take, which is bring, you know, bring everyone with me, which is very important. It's more just that I have to think about different ways to do that now. I've got a department of far too many people for me to speak with individually. Um, You know, we'll get to the press club speech I gave last week in a moment, but part of that is about me trying to explain to the amazing public servants that I work with, this is the direction we're going in. So there's a whole lot of interesting things to talk about there, but can I just mention one other thing that I've really learned in the last six months is that politicisation is the death of good public policy. Mm. (laughs) I just really notice and, and it's about opportunity cost. If you put your energy and efforts into politicising something and making a point, you're, you've wasted a day, a precious day of being a minister where you can actually um, shift a dollar. policy conversation forward. Yeah. And I think when I look back at like what I regard as the policy wasteland of the last nine years, this is the thing that's really like the light bulb moment for me is just understanding, yeah, they just play the politics day after day after day and they just don't have any time Mm. left to actually do the policy work to fix things. And I think that's something I really think about a lot. You know, we get political opportunities in the office and a lot of the time we make a decision, just let's let's leave it because we've got other things to do right now and you have to make those calls if you want to get things done in what is actually a very short three-year term that we get. I wish we could actually have the whole conversation about that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, let's let's just stay here just for a minute and submerge one more time, just picking up something you said. Obviously, home affairs is a relatively new construct mm-hmm. departmentally, bureaucratically, uh, but it was sort of formed at a particular time with a particular sort of, I mean, styling's the wrong word, mm. but with a particular... Ethos. Thank you. Thank you. I'm reaching for the word I need there. Anyway, so it was sort of formed with a particular ethos. Now, I don't think Labor's come into government saying all of that ethos stinks and we don't care about any of those things anymore. But obviously, and we're going to get to your new priorities, which are really interesting. But did you feel as Minister you had a big job to do in terms of shifting the ethos or telling bureaucrats who have been serving well, a securitised structure in a very partisan 
polarising mm. environment that that required any sort of different directions or from you as Minister? Yeah. Um, firstly, Home Affairs has sort of existed in one format or another since Federation. Yeah. And that's an interesting point only because looking at what the department was charged with throughout that um, period is actually quite fascinating. It shows you, you know, the sort of major national implications of uh, policy issues that were live at the time. But it was um, reincarnated by Peter Dutton in 2017. Mm. And I would say very much built in Peter Dutton's image. It mm. was about boats, borders. It was about, um, you know, some very important issues around child exploitation, um, the Australian Federal Police, organised crime, yep. drugs, you know, these sorts of matters. So these are really important issues for the country. Mm. No matter what where you sit in politics, these things really matter. The thing that has really struck me, though, in the last six months is what about the big picture national security issues we face here? So we have got, and Penny Wong and the PM have said this previously, we face the most dangerous set of strategic circumstances in the world that we've faced since the Second World War. Yep. So there's a lot of really bad things happening out there and people who say that can see ahead some decades. We're going into a very difficult period for our region in particular. Yep. And yet home affairs wasn't working on those issues mm. in a central way. It had some sort of peripheral focus on a few things. But for me, this is the thing. If we're concerned about domestic security, this is the main game here. And um, one of the points that I've sort of made is in previous conflicts, Australians themselves haven't really been affected by things until we actually fight at war mm. offshore. Mm. Um, it's very different because of technology. There's all these ways that state actors are trying to influence us yeah. that are happening right now. Cyber attacks, foreign interference, people, you know, harassing diaspora communities, all of these things are other countries reaching their tentacles into Australia and trying to influence or shape how we respond to global events. And we need to fight that. It is core for us to fight back against that. And if we don't, we end up with a degraded democracy, we end up with a country where people are polarised and fighting each other and we're not able to actually respond to events overseas as they may occur over the coming decades, mm. which is very intentional. That is mm. what other countries are trying to make happen here. Mm. So part of the work of the department now has to be saying these are home front issues, what are we going to do to fight back? Yeah, it's really fascinating because it's sort of... It's looking at national reconstruction mm. through a different lens. I mean, a, an adjacent lens, obviously, because all those core functions of fighting crime and intelligence and all that sort of stuff obviously go on. But I just, I think that whole issue of what security looks like in yeah. this age yeah. is so fundamental. And that was what was very interesting about your speech to yeah. the press club. Well, that's good to hear. It's, um, it just really is striking. How do we end up, I mean, and when you think about it, I think it's partly because Dutton created the department and these are his mm. sort of main issues in politics, but it's also just the changing times. This department was created in 2017, which is only five years ago, mm. but by God, the security environment's changed since 2017. And it's time for us to sort of stand back with Home Affairs and say, what are the issues that really matter and how can we get the department working on them? And that's what I'm doing at the moment. Yeah, and is there, um, again, with Home Affairs, because obviously you're setting a new direction as Minister, mm. um, consistently I think Home Affairs has really bad survey results in terms of morale and other things that make it sort of quite interesting actually as a, as a case study of leadership and management. Yeah. What's it like shifting those priorities? Do you, are people rising to the mm. new 
tone you're setting or do you feel like you're in, well, not conflict, that's ridiculous, yeah. but do you know what I mean? Is uh, it- look, my experience so far is that people are relieved and excited. Mm. I think they are thrilled to have a clarity of direction set out for them. And I sense, honestly, a huge enthusiasm in the department mm. to actually work on these things because, I mean, there's amazing people working at Home Affairs and just, like, my respect for them is absolute. And they get involved in public policy because they want to serve their country. And I think for a lot of them, they probably know that some of the things that they were doing weren't necessarily mm. furthering that aim, that mm. there was a lot of politics in the work that they were asked to perform. And I really want to strip that back and I want the department to understand the centrality of their work to the security of Australians and give them a clear sense of what this work of this department needs to be. Mm. And I think it will be quite changed after three years. So I don't want to speak for the the people who no, I work with no, in the department, sure. but, um, yeah, my, my overarching sense is they are very pleased. Mm. Just in terms of the politics, um, it occurred to me when I was watching you speak, uh, I was all of a sudden taken back to election day and you and I don't need to rehash that territory because that has been comprehensively rehashed in the public domain. But I was just thinking about the alleged armada of boat arrivals mm. that were going to accompany the uh, the, the new Labor government. Yeah. And then I, because I, I, I was looking at you and I thought, God, I never actually checked that. Yeah. Did, did the Armada turn up? Or what, what happened there? Well, I mean, shock and awe, but the coalition <laughs> was probably playing politics with asylum seekers and boats, Catherine. Um, we did actually, you, you'll remember there was a boat that arrived on election yes. day because that was when the government did something incredibly immoral and stupid mm-hmm. and talked about a live military led operation while it was in train. Mm-hmm. But we've had a small handful of boats come in, and I have arranged safe orderly transfer of the people who tried to come back to their home countries. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very important to me that we don't return to the past situation we had where people in large numbers drowned trying to make Mm. their way to Australia. We want to provide good, safe pathways for refugees to come here and our government is committed to doing that but it's not going to be by boats. That was not a good thing for our country. And I know there's people listening who will feel vehemently opposite about that. It is not a good way to run an immigration program. Mm. And the the evidence for that is 1,200 lives lost at sea. Mm. I mean, any other public policy that we had that resulted in that would be scandalised, royal commissions, everything else. And the fact that people still defend that approach to me is, um, you know, it's confusing. Mm. Okay, let's dive into your priorities, which you articulated in this speech a week or so ago. If you guys missed it, uh, there is a transcript of the full speech available on the Minister for Home Affairs website. It is worth a read, actually. Now, I want to get into the areas that you've nominated. So let's just do them one one by one, okay? So you identified climate change and disaster resilience as really important sort of focus. Now, uh, regular listeners know that I spoke to Murray Watt Mm. about these issues, I can't even remember, maybe a month or six weeks ago in Mm. terms of uh, disaster preparedness. Uh, But why don't you take us through that, Claire, in terms of your Mm. thinking about how to consolidate and centralise those Just stepping back a little bit, the broad narrative here is that Home Affairs created in 2017 to deal with this particular set of issues 
issues, the security environment's radically transformed and we need to change the work of the department to adapt to that. And so that means the department continuing to do its really important work around terrorism and other matters. It means doing some things the department was already doing differently. So cybersecurity and immigration are in that category of things. And then it means doing some new work altogether. And you talked to Murray Watt, who is the responsible minister for this within the Home Affairs Department, about the decision to bring together all of the emergency management functions of the Australian government into home affairs. This is very important for our national security because um, part of resilience is being able to get quickly back up off the mat when you've taken a hit. Mm. And part of it is also being able to cope with concurrent disasters. And that's a big national security feature of climate change for Australia. There are 10 times more natural disasters occurring each year than there were in 1960. And we know that that's just going to get worse Mm. as our climate warms further. So we've got to stop treating natural disasters as though, you know, feigning shock, one in 100 year events, you know, highly unusual. Well, they're just not highly unusual anymore. There's a rolling frequency to natural disasters in Australia. And we need to just adapt our government to um, have this enduring coordinating function which sits there permanently ready to deal with disasters as they emerge. One of the national security implications that's important with this concept of cascading disasters, if your listeners just think about, imagine us having a Black Saturday bushfire in the southeast while there's flooding in the north of Australia and then there's a cyber attack on the west coast and then something happens in the region that the Australian government needs to respond to. Mm. We just wouldn't be able to today. We'd be fully consumed with probably just one of those three events that are happening on shore, we can't operate like that anymore. We know that climate's going to create these new vulnerabilities. We know we're going to have more cyber attacks and other um, things coming into our country and we are going to have to cope with whatever goes on in the region. So this is part of the Australian government kind of building and flexing that muscle of disaster response that will be very important. And and it's sort of like it's expertise, obviously, uh, but it's it's also personnel, isn't it? It's sort of like... You know, I'd, I'd sort of put this to Murray Watt. It's kind of like, it's almost like you need a, a standing civilian workforce in those sort of uh, climate-related disasters that you're talking about, Ryan. I think that's that's something that we do need to think about. Mm. Um, we've been very reliant on the Defence Force yeah. for assistance with these matters. That's probably not going to be workable in the long term, given the just the regularity of these events. I mean, defence are amazing and, you know, in times where we've got nowhere else to turn, defence is there every day of the week. Yeah. But if we are going to have to accept a world where we've basically got rolling natural disasters in Australia all the time, then the Defence Force need to focus on defence and we're going to have to think about how we staff an emergency response function that sits outside of, of defence. And then cyber... Because, I mean, one can sort of, we can move seamlessly, I think, from that issue yeah, to cyber. Yeah, well, they're all interrelated, right? really. They're all yeah, interrelated. Yeah, yeah. So let's think about cyber capability. Uh, what needs to occur there? Obviously, we've seen the hacks of Medicare data, and mm. they're, sorry, Medibank. Medibank, yeah. Medibank data. And let me step back and ask you this question, right? Mm. Like, because I'm obviously, I don't follow that intimately. It looks as though now there are events with increasing frequency, mm. right? Are there more events? Is this sort of cycle of disruption, for want of a better characterization, is it intensifying? Mm. Or are we just being sort of more transparent about it than we have been in the past or are we just sort of enabling a conversation that we haven't really had to the extent that we needed to before? Mm. I think it's two things. Medibank and Optus were enormously 
important events for the country, sentinel events in in cybersecurity, and nothing like this had ever happened before in Australia. So that's the first thing. But I think what it's done is just shone a light on what was a pretty kind of underreported cybersecurity kind of landslide that we were falling into. Mm. Now that people are talking a lot more about cyber incidents, you would see that there's one every few days, a major, a fairly major cyber incident where some personal data has been stolen, it might be a ransomware attack. And so I think it's just brought to light the fact that this was actually already happening and we were not prepared for it, Hmm. not prepared at all. Like when Optus happened, I was staggered by how the Australian government didn't have a cyber incident response mechanism that I just would automatically as an Australian have thought existed. Mm. Um, so with Optus, it felt like some of the things we were doing, we were doing for the first time, which we, which really, it shouldn't have felt like that. With mm. Medibank, it was different and we'd just been through it three weeks earlier. So I think people's kind of response was a bit more seamless. Um, but, you know, the truth is we didn't have a cybersecurity minister for the last three years. Scott Morrison became prime minister and one of his first decisions was to scrap that ministry. So we've had no one really firmly leading the country's building of cyber resilience and management of these issues because cyber security attacks are relentless and they're getting bigger and stronger all the time. And mm-hmm. this is a global problem without question. Like some of the things that have happened, there's, you know, I would regard sort of 2021 as a big wake-up call year for the US. For us, it was 2022. Mm. And we do have to do some big things now to to make a step change in our response. And it's a combination, right, of state-sponsored and crims, right? Like it's sort of both, isn't it? Uh, I know you don't talk about state actors in terms of specific events, right? But again, in terms of ratio, I'm just trying to understand this a bit better. Is it mainly oh. criminals? Is it mainly state-sponsored activity? Like yeah. what, what's your, because you sit above it all. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to put a ratio on it. I'd just say it's coming at us thick and fast from every direction. Mm. <laughs> It really is. This is a new way of prosecuting grievances and crime around the world. And cyber um, hackers see this as a low-cost, relatively safe way of, you know, committing an offence. It is hard to bring them to justice. Mm. Um, And we've got to change things up so Australia is a much harder target for them. And that's part of our work at the moment is thinking about how to do that. And it's sort of like thinking about how to do that. It's, again, it's presumably it's a combination of assisting businesses and entities to basically harden up and by that I I mean their security around data and so on. Um, At a government level, what does it involve? Like is it expertise? I mean, obviously... You know, there's considerable expertise in the Australian mm. government, but I, I detect there's not enough, right? Well, so. I don't think there's enough cybersecurity expertise anywhere. I mean, we have we have a lot of world-class cyber expertise in the Australian government, and I am happy about that. It's probably the way that it was being deployed was something that needed to change. And so you talked about hardening and making Australia a tougher target for cyber criminals. The other thing we want to do is impose costs on those that target Australia. Mm-hmm. And that's why this the Hackers Task Force that we're setting up, this collaboration between the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Signals Directorate is really important. We want hackers around the world to understand that we've stepped up here and that if you come after us, we will be after you. And you actually can find these people online. You can disrupt their efforts. You can degrade their machines. You can destroy them. Mm. And most cyber attackers don't want that. And so 
you know, we want them to go go elsewhere. Basically, territories with less defences. That that sounds a little bit cold because another part of this is just overall. This does need to be a global approach, and there is a lot of cooperation between, you know, Five Eyes countries on these things and our kind of equivalent intelligence organisations in the online world collaborate very seamlessly across countries. Something that is important is. is the Pacific, and mm-hmm. this is a real, really big problem in the Pacific. A lot of your listeners would have heard about Vanuatu coming under major cyber attack, and that's not the only time this has happened. So with the cyber strategy that um, I announced in the speech, Tim Watts, who's uh, the Assistant Foreign Minister, is going to lead this international stream of work, mm-hmm. which is about Australia showing leadership globally, but also us working with partners who we have a great interest in them becoming cyber secure. They also are very interested in becoming more cyber secure. So there's a real partnership opportunity there. Yeah. And and Tim, well, like yourself, has got considerable Absolutely. Expertise. He's the man for the job. Yes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. No, he is. Uh, you know, he's got amazing amounts of knowledge. and He's extremely yeah. expert. It's so really great to be working with him. It is yeah. good to see him deployed mm. on this uh, as a strategy, you know, acknowledging your own expertise, you know, as well. I mean, I think you'll be... You'll be an interesting duo on yeah. that. So it's fair to <laughs> it's say. It's not our first radio. No, exactly. Together, so. <laughs> no, no, no. No, yeah. These guys know each other well. Um, anyway, so um, okay, so there's that. Let's talk about the change in the risk environment. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, five minutes ago we were worried about terrorism and mm. of course every liberal democracy in the world will go on mm-hmm. worrying about yep, terrorism absolutely. for the remainder of our days. Uh, but now the sort of um the balance of risk has shifted towards foreign interference, mm. which is related to cyber. Mm. So let's let's prosecute yeah. that a little bit. So yeah, sure. So this is a, a very significant thing happened in our security landscape this year, which is the Director General of ASIO does an annual threat assessment report, which explains what Australia's national security environment looks like. And earlier in 2022, for the first time, he announced that countering foreign interference and espionage are actually bigger national security threats for our country than terrorism. An enormously important change given the extraordinary focus that we've put on terrorism over a long period of time and very successfully. And we have these brilliant mature arrangements in Australia that really have kept us largely safe um, from terrorist acts, not completely but largely. Mm. Um, So to hear that, you know, that change had occurred tells us We've been very successful in our fight against terrorism. We can't take our eye off the ball there because threats to life are always going to be a priority of ASIO and of government. But we now look over here at this other problem of foreign interference and espionage. Mm. And, you know, the Director-General will talk about shocking attempts to influence the outcome of Australian elections, foreign governments literally trying to sponsor people to go into Parliament Mm. so they will use their position to report back and make decisions in, in support of foreign powers, horrible harassment of diaspora communities, of researchers doing research that um, foreign governments don't like. Um, The list just goes on and on and on. Mm. And, um, you know, networks of spies operating in Australia like we haven't seen for many decades. So something really big is going on here and it's countries around the world changing how they think about what their sort of statecraft looks like, thinking that they've created a whole lot of new options for themselves basically about how they influence the rest of the world. Mm. And that involves Australia and Australians and getting in, you know, 
hacking our phones and, you know, trying to influence what we do at the ballot box, really bad things for the country. So mm. we are going to need to um, do a lot to step up efforts on fighting these problems over the coming years. And I was interested in, um, I think what you were sort of pointing towards is one one of the strategies was sort of outreach and yeah. education. Can yeah. you expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So in my experience dealing with this problem so far, the kinds of Australians who would be subjects of foreign interference, um, so thinking about politicians, community leaders, you know, university professors, this sort of thing, they're incredibly anxious about it. They kind of know that they're in the orbit of this force, but they don't know what it looks like and how to tackle it. Right. And so um, what we're working on is a program of outreach to try to really explain to people in detail Here's what foreign interference looks like. Here is what these people are trying to do. Here is how, you know, what the playbook looks like and here's what you need to do about it because once we equip them with that information, um, they will use it and they will make better decisions. You know, one of the um, examples here is our universities in Australia. Most of them are incredibly um, worried about this problem Mm -hmm. but they're saying to us, well, tell us more. We need more information so we can make good calls about where we're collaborating with global universities and all of these other things. Mm-hmm. So it's there's a it's a little bit of a cultural shift because, um, you know, these intelligence organisations aren't necessarily, you know, opening their doors as their first, as their first approach mm-hmm. to problems. But I'm really encouraging them to think about, you've got this information, let's now share it with people who can use it to help keep the country safe. Yeah, it is really interesting thought, like what, what information you do share. Yeah. But also just that general level of... Well, I guess it's fluency, isn't it? It's like understanding, understanding certain modes of operation, understanding whether there might be risks that you haven't exactly thought through. And I through. mean, I'm a member of parliament, so I'm I'm evidently a target for this sort of contact. Um, you probably are too, yeah. Catherine, as an opinion leader. Um, I don't think there's been sufficient efforts, for example, to sit down with members of parliament and say you're a target. Here's mm-hmm. what it looks like. Here's what to do. And it's also important because the playbook's always evolving. And, you know, authoritarian countries are learning from each other about how to do these things. So we need to actually provide, you know, fresh, frequent information about what's going on so people can protect themselves. Yeah, okay. And then related to that, we'll need to do immigration, but I think let's try and keep thematically straight, says the... You're doing says, a great job. <laughs> says, says the woman on Almost last Almost at Christmas show. and you're doing Ooh. a great job. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my God. Um, no, but let's, let's, yeah, keep thematically straight. All of these things that we're talking about are critically important. Yeah. But uh, what I was most interested in as a listener Mm. to your speech was the section basically on strengthening democracy Mm -hmm. uh, and how that sort of ties back to, uh, you know, the other issues we've been exploring. So, again, Claire, why don't you expand Mm. a little bit on what you mean by that and how it connects to other things? Sure. So I think the first thing to say is why is democracy a national security issue? The answer is because... When we look at the problems we're going to confront over the coming decades, our democracy is our single most precious asset and we have to protect our national assets. Also because authoritarian countries are on a global mission Mm -hmm. to deliberately portray democracy as inherently dysfunctional and our democracy isn't dysfunctional and we have a real opportunity here to show the world that democracy works and it is the best system of government I have no question about that, and I'm sure you you mm. feel the same way. But why don't Australians feel that way? Mm. And this is the thing that we really need to address. 
the um, stats around trust in democracy, especially amongst Australia's young people, are truly shocking. So we've got to change something here. We can't just continue to have this precious asset deteriorated um, year by year and kind of stand back and wave our arms around and say, oh, God, you know, Mm. look at this problem. Mm. Wither the policy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, there's plenty of people listening who probably feel that politicians have something to do with this and, you know, absolutely, for Mm. sure, you know, no no one would suggest otherwise. But we've got to do something different here. We just can't let this happen to our country. Um, And I talked in the speech a little bit about, you know, a lot of Australians may not realise this, but we are a global innovator in democracy. We're the sixth oldest democracy in the world. And I would argue, if not the most functional, certainly amongst the top, you know, few democracies around the world. So we've got a conundrum here. Mm. For me, why is our democracy actually quite effective? Sure, it's got its problems and, you know, people are right to be sceptical and that's an important part of, you know, our uniquely Australian way of doing things. But I do feel like the public attitude is telling us that something's not working. Mm. So this is something that there's a lot of kind of people around the world thinking about and I sort of said in the speech it's a much-admired problem. People love to sort of talk about the shapes and contours of this and that problem. I want us to move forward from there. We all can see that trust in democracy is in decline and polarisation is on the rise. Mm. What do we do? So the work that my department will do will be laser focus on concrete actions that we can actually take out of this. So we'll be looking at things like civics education and are we telling people in Australia enough about their amazing political system that's delivered us incredible safety and prosperity over a long period of time. Um, We need to have a discussion about technology companies and the Mm -hmm. role that they're playing here. And, um, you know, for a long time these tech companies have been essentially begging to be regulated they then usually go around and say and critique all attempts mm, to regulate them. But I think everyone accepts that something's not working here and we, we haven't really had a stab in a kind of sustained way of trying to to address those issues. So it's really trying to step back what is going on here and how we're going to fix it. And I think if we do some good work on this, it will genuinely be world-leading because mm. all the democracies and indeed all the Home Affairs ministers that I speak to are having these really same deep-seated concerns about the functioning of their system. Yeah, and that uh, trajectory about trust that you refer to is measurable, right, mm. as we both know, right? And the sort of trajectory of trust was sort of quite interesting. Obviously, it really fell off a cliff during yep. the, what I call the regicidal era in Canberra when yep. everybody was offing leaders every yep, five fair minutes, enough, fair right? Enough, yep. Like it really tanked. Yeah. It came back in that first year of the pandemic. I mean, not to, you know, soaring heights, but it did recover. Mm. Uh, People sort of looked at a government that was broadly, or a set of governments, I should say, that were broadly trying to look after people's interests. Mm. You know, people rewarded them for that uh, by just thinking the whole thing isn't cooked. Mm. Um, But then we've sort of come off that sort of recovery again, sort of in these last two years of the pandemic. I'm interested in this because we all look at what's happening in the US and and in the UK to a you know, greater or lesser extent, right? And we wonder what is the difference, right? The US is kind of like democratic decay to the point where not enough people in that democracy believe in their system of government anymore when that is really difficult, right? We're not there in Australia yet, as you say, but we could get there. What do you think the differences are? Well, I think there's some very important ones. Could I just say I think the problem, um, one of the issues in America is is not just declining trust in democracy, but intense political polarisation yeah. beyond the point of 
ability to civilly disagree, which I think Australians have got a really good balance here of being quite opinionated about politics. But, you know, the the families breaking apart and all the other things you hear about in the US is, is not something we see here. So I think we have, um, we have a very, very good system here in Australia. So, I mean, one of the cornerstones of that is compulsory voting, where if even if you hate politics and you don't want to tune in, you have to pay a little bit of attention at some point every couple of years to cast a vote. And that's a good thing. People should pay attention because this matters and they do have a civic duty. Um, we've got an independent electoral commission. Mm. Cannot overstate how important that is. So, you know, in in, um, in other countries, there's all kinds of politics about how the boundaries of seats yeah. are drawn. Yeah. There's all sorts of, you know, different ways in which votes are counted from state to state. We don't have that here. We've got really good bureaucrats, and I say that in the most complimentary way possible, mm. running our election system and is basically impossible for me to interfere with if I ever did want to do that, which, of course, I wouldn't. Um, so I think those three things are, are hugely powerful impacts. Um, so I don't feel that we're kind of heading down that pathway, but it doesn't matter. We don't have to be referring ourselves against some other country. The stats tell the story themselves. We've got significant declines in democracy across Australia generally, but in particular amongst young people. Mm. And again, we just, why are we standing back and not doing anything about yeah. this? Why are we not, why has no one yet sat down and said, this is a yeah, national problem that needs a proper solution? And in terms of the platforms also, I mean, just in our sphere, in the news media bargaining code, obviously Australia was capable of producing mm. some legislation that was genuinely an innovation in a global sense and should, one imagines, mm. we can do similar, you know, make a similar strike in order to, you know, defend our democracy, which you and I agree is our prime asset. Yeah, so. exactly. And just on that point, you know, I, I guess I, I hear the frustrations people have with democracy. I'm very respectful of them because citizens are ultimately the boss here and if they're not happy, they're not happy. I just note our, our parliament actually functions in this country and I think sometimes that gets a bit lost in the debate. We mm. actually can pass laws, we do pass laws, and I think when you compare that to a number of legislatures around the world that we sort of, you know, would compare ourselves with normally, we're actually doing well, but whatever. That's just my my point that I need mm. to make as a legislator. Um, we've clearly got a problem here and I do want us to address it. We're running the clock here, so thank you, Claire, for making making the time. And thank you to uh, the EP of the show, Molly Glassy. Thank you to Alison Chan, who's cut it for us. Thank you to you guys for listening. Have a really great Christmas, and we will return in 2023 with all the madness. And in the interim, take care of you. Thanks, guys. Happy Christmas. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.